I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. Harvey Weiner wears many hats. In fact, he brought them to TBA to show us. In this episode, Harvey speaks passionately about a few of the things that matter most to him, particularly his time in Vietnam and his dedication to his brothers and sisters in arms. He is passionate about honoring the legacy of Jews who've served in the armed services and is the immediate past commander of the National Jewish War Veterans. Harvey is a boy from the streets of Mattapan, a litigator, a proud veteran, and an all-around mensch. Come learn more about him. RV, uh, you know, there are about a thousand topics between the two of us that we could choose to uh, focus on, and this could be part one of You could be a podcast series yourself, just talking about the the span of your life to this moment. So it was really daunting to me as we were thinking about wanting to talk to you, how to best approach that. So first of all, Harvey, welcome to TVA Now. Thank you. I didn't know what we were going to talk about either, so I brought hats from a different aspects <laughs> of my life. Uh, this here is my uh, youth hat of Boy Scouts when I was uh, 11, 12, and 13. Then I brought my uh, high school hat uh, for Boston Latin School, if you were going to talk about that. Uh, then I brought my uh, Vietnam hat, if you were going to talk about that. Finally, I was going to, uh, if you were going to talk about my law firm, I brought my law firm hat. And finally, <laughs> if you're going to talk about the Jewish war veterans, I brought my Jewish war veterans hat. And I just want to say to all of our loyal listeners that Harvey is not just talking in metaphor. He literally has a hat representing each and every one of those moments. I, I was hoping he would have a uh, uh, like a top hat from FDR for one of the plays mm-hmm. that you were in. But um, the, the, it is, I think, indeed emblematic that, that you have all of those hats. You've worn so many of them. And God knows there's a million. Like I just said, there's a, there's a million stories with each one. For instance, and I'm totally going out of order, but it just dawned on me. You held up your uh, Boy Scout cap, and some years ago, you sent your Eagle badge back to the Boy Scouts. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, what happened was I learned for the first time that the Boy Scouts did not allow gay men to be Boy Scout leaders, and uh, I was appalled by this, and I sent a, uh, my Eagle Scout badge back to the uh, central headquarters of the Boy Scouts, but I just said to them, look, uh, why don't you hold this in escrow? Because I know, for example, that uh, you're going to change your policy in future years, as they had when when there was uh, racial segregation. Uh, Boy Scouts in the South were racially segregated. They changed that. And I knew they were eventually going to change their view on uh, on gay uh, scout leaders. And when they did, I sent them a letter and asked them for uh, my badge back. So they said they lost it. 
But if I sent in $65, they would replace it. So I sent a letter back saying, somebody must have got your stationery and sent me this ridiculous letter that uh, I would have to pay for the Eagle Scout badge that you lost. And they replied, no, that is our policy. And I replied back, gee, this isn't the uh, Boy Scout uh, motto and the Boy Scout uh, pledges that I remembered. And we left it at that. So I still don't have my uh, Eagle Scout badge back, even though I'm entitled to it. <laughs> I would love if, if you could narrate for us a sketch of your childhood as a nice Jewish boy uh, on the streets of Boston. What was your youth like and how did it connect with your being Jewish? Well, I was uh, born and raised in uh, the neighborhoods of Boston. Uh, for 13 years, I lived in uh, Mattapan and then thereafter I moved to Hyde Park. In Mattapan, I was on the border of a Jewish slash Irish area. I was not really raised in Judaism in the sense that uh, we did not belong to a temple. I went to Hebrew school, Temple Bethel on Morton Street uh, for two years, but uh, I dropped out. I'm a Hebrew school dropout. My parents were not members of a temple. Uh, I really had limited, almost no religious training at all. I did have a quickie bar mitzvah. I was tutored and then I was by mitzvah on the Temple Agudas Israel in Woodrow Ave in Mattapan. But that was really the last uh, Jewish event uh, I ever had until I was in law school, in which I was invited by one of my roommates to a Seder, the first Seder I ever went to, in uh, Pennsylvania. And it was long, and I didn't understand any of it. And uh, boy, was I glad it was over. I think it lasted about three days. <laughs> and you're suggesting even into law school, it was nothing that particularly resonated in a positive way. It was just kind of like a part of a description of your, of your being, as it were. It, it didn't resonate in really any way that uh, I think affected my life at least until uh, I joined this temple. You've been a part of the temple for, I mean, I, I don't know if, if you've done the math, but I'm looking at the math and- 40 years. Yeah, a, a 40 year, 40 years deep connection to Temple Beth of Odah. And I was, I was looking at my notes and just in terms of being a part of TBA, so you're a past president a serial thespian, a student of Torah. Uh, these are just some of the things that you've done, not to mention being involved in numerous uh, activities and uh, programs. And to the outsider looking in, they might see you, oh, he's, you know, this is a guy, he's been involved for 40 years. Uh, of course, he joined a temple, but obviously, as you're suggesting, uh, the, the line is not quite so straight. So how do you get from, you know, you're Jewish by birth and it's kind of part of your ethnic identity to being on stage for Fiddler on a Roof twice? That's a series of questions, but let me answer it this way. Uh, when uh, we moved to Newton and our kids were uh, uh, getting older, my wife, who is Jewish and 
actually was a surprise to me to marry a Jewish girl. She wanted to join a temple to educate our kids to, to be Jews. And I had no objection to that. So we joined this temple. And the reason we chose this temple was propinquity. It was the closest uh, to where we were living. My kids were, of course, forced to go to uh, Hebrew school and Sunday school. And I felt it was kind of unfair to them uh, that they would have to go. And I didn't do anything. So I did go to Torah classes and I enjoyed it. It was very intellectual. Rabbi Miller was the, uh, it was his class at the time. He was the rabbi and it evolved. I think I might be an example of someone who, who can get involved in temple life without having a strong or even a, a, a not so strong Jewish background. There is at this temple and in Judaism in general, a place for everyone, no matter how late you uh, decide to uh, become involved in it. And I'm an example. How would you trace the arc of your connection to Jewishness, uh, Jewish thought, Jewish experiences, to the work that you do and to the things that matter most to you uh, politically and socially and ethically? Well, um, uh, Reform Judaism, uh, to me, is about uh, tikkun olam, helping prepare the world, repair the world. And that is always something, even growing up, that I believed in. I was uh, active in college in the civil rights movement. I attended the the uh, March on Washington. I was uh, head of the uh, Young Democrats. I was one of the first individuals in college to have a Negro, as they were called then, as a roommate. All that is part of my background, and uh, it fits with Reform Judaism, and it fits with this temple. So uh, each has informed the other. Uh, temple Beth Avoda and Reform Judaism do a lot of uh, uh, what I view as civil rights and helping repair the world type of work. And it, it fits the values of this temple and the values of, uh, temp of uh, Reform Judaism, to me, uh, reflect my values, both my values uh, growing up and my values now. This is just one small aspect, as I suggested, of, of one of your many hats. And I wanted to shift over this podcast. We'll, we'll drop March 29th is Welcome Home Vietnam Veterans Day. And I think that for we of the baby boomer generation, just to hear the name Vietnam uh, creates a vast array of images and the deepest of feelings. What led to your being in Vietnam? And what years were you there? Uh, in retrospect, I, I you know, uh, weighing the pros and the cons, I'm sorry I was there, uh, but there are some pros out of it. How I got there was that in college, I was in Army ROTC. And at the time, um, I thought that uh, I would be spending either uh, two years of enforced leisure in Germany or in France. And that didn't turn out to be the case because the Vietnam War intervened. I 
took ROTC for a couple of reasons. One is I needed the money and uh, come from a very poor background and uh, it paid $50 a month. And I really needed that money to go through college. I was on full scholarship, but I had no spending money at all. And uh, that was uh, that was like my job. I was in Vietnam uh, from uh, uh, May 16th, 1969 to May 16th, 1970. And uh, I served in as an advisor to the uh, Vietnamese in the southern Mekong Delta in a province called Chung Tin Province. And uh, I have my Chung Tin advisor's hat, which I'm showing you, but the others cannot see it. Advisory Team 73 of Chung Tin. I spent an eventful year not a lot of combat, but some combat. I probably had more responsibility that year in Vietnam than I've ever had for the rest of my life. Extraordinary, interesting uh, time period. The negative effects of my going to Vietnam was that, uh, as you are aware, that uh, from Agent Orange, I suffered cancer, two types of leukemia. But uh, almost more importantly, uh, it was a year uh, of my wife and my parents worrying. I would send them uh, postcards saying that, you know, I'm in a swimming pool in Saigon when I was in fact out in the field. I, uh, but, an, uh, but some good parts about it uh, was that I have made friends, uh, lifelong friends of both the Vietnamese who survived and the Americans who survived that I was on the same advisory team with. We were a team of about 50 to 70 people. And uh, we have reunions every other year. We would live and die for each other. I have met people and become close, close friends with people from not only all over the country geographically, but all over the country culturally and socially, uh, from farmers from West Texas, from uh, all over a type of integration of Americans that really doesn't exist anymore with a volunteer army. For example, uh, my wife and I were invited uh, by one of the sergeants about 10 years ago to be the guests of honor at the 50th annual fish fry at Watson, Arkansas. I mean, how could that happen now? So uh, I think one of the things we've lost and as part of what's happening in America today is the military as a unifying force of people from all aspects of America. That was a good thing I got out of Vietnam. And a good thing that I got is lifelong friendships with people from all walks of American life. Harvey, were some of the people that you served with uh, in your uh, advisory group, uh, did some of them also end up getting cancer due to their exposure to Agent Orange? Well, someone got killed uh, and others did uh, get cancer and many died, particularly early on after they came to the United States when they weren't connecting what they uh, had with Agent Orange. Uh, for example, the only other Jewish guy in my province, he worked under me, was a Jewish guy from Oklahoma. And you as a ex-Texan must know about the uh, many, many Jews in Oklahoma. And he got sick 
with the same type of leukemia that I had, at least one of the types, pretty early uh, after he came back. And he died probably 20 years after coming back, probably in 1990, uh, maybe 10 years before I got my cancer. So he was one that I knew of and several I don't know of that I assume have died because of Agent Orange, particularly if they were diagnosed early and there was no connection made. Harvey, what did it feel like for you in ROTC during a time in American society where on the campus you were, it wasn't exactly like uh, ROTC was a popular choice. What was it like? Uh, did you walk around on campus? You were at Columbia, yes? No, I was at Harvard. Was it weird? Was it awkward? Did you not care? Did people not care? This was 1960 to 1964. And uh, being uh, in ROTC was uh, not uh, shunned upon. It was not considered a negative thing. It was, we had robust ROTC, both Army, uh, Navy, and Air Force, maybe 50 to 100 uh, people in my class of 1,500 were in ROTC. It was not uh, shunned upon. The only negative thing is this was the beginning of uh, the hippie culture, and I wanted to grow my hair long, but uh, that was out of, and grow a beard and mustache, and that was out of the question. Because of ROTC. That's a real negative part of ROTC <laughs> between 1960 and 1964. So you could not wear the, the other uniform of, of hippie culture. So when do you find out that you're going to Vietnam? Well, I pretty much knew I was going to Vietnam by, I would say, 1965. I'm at Columbia Law School, and I know that when I get out of law school, I'm going to Vietnam. Uh, after three years of Columbia Law School, I spent an extra year uh, getting a, a master's of law at the London School of Economics. So I uh, spread it out for another year, uh, hopefully uh, that the war would end, but uh, it, it did not. And uh, I knew I got, definitely got my, I definitely knew I was going to Vietnam by 1968 when I began my infantry officer's basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia. And so at that point, the attitude about Vietnam and about service, between when you went into ROTC and now, uh, as you're really sitting on the threshold of uh, going to Vietnam, what's your sense of the situation that you're walking into? My sense of the situation I'm walking into is that I'm a soldier. And uh, I do, uh, if every soldier uh, had a choice as to whether or not they wanted to do a particular task or go to a particular war, it would be a problem. So I signed up for this, and uh, that's what I was going to do. I wanted to honor my country. I wanted to honor myself, in this, and I wanted to do my job. I believed at the time and still do that every American, male and female, should spend two years in some type of national service, whether it's Peace Corps or military or health service or city year for two years or something like that. If I had not been in the military at that time, I would have wanted to spend two years in the Peace Corps. So I felt that I was doing 
you know, my, my duty to my country. And this happened to be the way I was going to do it because I, was, I had signed up for it. What was the hardest thing you had to do in Vietnam? The hardest thing I had to do in Vietnam was not being in combat. The hardest thing I had to do was when members of my small advisory team were killed and their bodies were brought back to Saigon, I would have to uh, uh, get their things together and, uh, um, and put them together to be sent back to their uh, next of kin and write a letter uh, either to their spouses, their wives, or their parents expressing my condolences and the team's condolences and our appreciation for the uh, sacrifice that this individual had. Even though uh, people uh, fight and die for their buddies, they don't fight and die for their country. Uh, maybe World War II was a different, but at least in our little neck of the woods in the Mekong Delta, we fought for each other and to stay alive. So that was the most difficult thing I had to do. The, the images, again, popular images, is that when soldiers came back from Vietnam, and as time went on more so, that uh, the images are that frequently veterans were met with all kinds of terrible insult and a terrible reception, you know, that the, uh, the, the, the names that they were called, et cetera. Did you experience that? Do you have, in your experience, as, more broadly as part of this band of brothers and sisters who served, was that a common incident? And the answer is yes. And let me give you a personal story on this. Uh, when I returned from Vietnam, the plane that took me from Saigon with a few stops to San Francisco, I had the flu. I was really sick. And when I uh, came out of the plane, the military plane uh, at Travis Air Force Base in San Francisco, we were shuttled over to the civilian airport. And I was going to get a, pl a pl plane, book a plane back to uh, New York where my uh, in-laws and parents and my wife were going to uh, greet me, hopefully eagerly. As I went up to the counter of, uh, the, at the civilian airport to buy a ticket, and I was in uniform because you get a military discount if you're in uniform, I ran into an anti-war demonstration. And this uh, woman comes running up to me, an elderly, elderly woman, maybe 40 years old. And she came up to me and spoke yell baby killer or something like that. Remember, I'm sick and not thinking clearly. And she spit at me, but she missed uh, and she landed in my shoes. And I was not happy with that because my shoes had already been spit shined. So the last thing I wanted is for that to be spit on again. But anyways, I was too sick to respond in any way. I eventually bought my ticket and went on the plane. But that unexpected expectatory greeting at that airport caused me to go sort of underground for 30 years and not mention to anyone that I had been uh, in Vietnam. My Linda, my wife, uh, who was a waiting wife, W-A-I-T-I-N-G, it's a, a term of science and of art while I was uh, in Vietnam, was uh, uh, not supported when I was away. So it was a very, very negative thing. And the best thing that could have happened to me was that I just not talked about it at all. That, of course, was a mistake, and I should have talked about it. 
at nine, when 9-11 happened, I, uh, I had an epiphany that I didn't want uh, soldiers to be treated like I was treated. And I wanted to somehow get the nation to separate the warriors from the war. Uh, so I joined various veterans groups. But it turns out that uh, that particular uh, shtick that I wanted that was unnecessary. Because we didn't have a draft, people were able to uh, separate the unpopular war in Iraq uh, with the warriors. There was support for the warriors, but lack of support for the war, which I agreed with. So I was stuck in all these veterans groups I joined, and my focus changed. And my focus changed, particularly with the Jewish war veterans, which uh, its 125th anniversary is on March 15th of this year. It changed because uh, in a couple of situations, uh, I had mentioned that I was a member of the Jewish war veterans or a veteran, and the individual said to me, oh, I didn't know there were any. So uh, my epiphany there was that I had a mission uh, now with the Jewish war veterans, and that was to tell everybody I could and that uh, Jews served too. And it may interest you to know, Rabbi, that Jews have served their country in all of America's wars up through the Vietnam War in a proportion greater than their proportion in the general population. This is generally unknown. Since Vietnam, less so, and it's been less than, but certainly up until then, so that if there's any propaganda that Jews have not served their country and are not entitled uh, somehow to be part of the building of their con this country and have not sacrificed their lives and uh, uh, for this country, it is patently untrue statistically and otherwise. I was saying it's similar to, I think, the black experience that uh, um, the number of uh, black people that joined the service was a way of showing, as for Jews, uh, showing that indeed one was loyal to one's country and thankful and believing in the the best aspects of it and were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in that regard. Absolutely. For example, three years ago, West Point graduated its 1,000th uh, Jewish cadet, which is slightly uh, proportionally more than the general population. In fact, I think in 1802, the first graduating West Point class was 50% Jewish. Wow. Of course, in that graduating class, there were only uh, two graduates. <laughs> and one of them was Jewish, and his name was Simon Levy. But you and I wouldn't talk much about him because, you know, after all, he finished last in his class. <laughs> Certainly tells you you've used that line before. I don't know. I have. <laughs> um, your involvement with Jewish war veterans, as you've talked about what your experience was in Vietnam and the notion that one fights for the foreign with the people that you are uh, serving with uh, is really poignant here. And the notion of looking out for those people and that they are connected to you for the rest of your life from, from that moment on. Has this nation come to terms with? honoring and recognizing those who served? Uh, is there still 
a scar, a trauma attached to it? What, what's your sense of that, Harvey? I have a couple of answers to that. Uh, the reason uh, on March 29th, there is a, uh, a is National Vietnam Veterans Day, is that uh, it's, it's a kind of a coming to terms uh, with that. It has a lot to do with uh, guilt. It has a lot to do with that there were no parades coming back. It has a lot to do with uh, uh, the war was not won, uh, as it should not have been. And uh, it has a lot to do with there being no draft. People in power, their children are not at risk anymore. And uh, they're able with a clear conscience to uh, uh, honor those who were at risk because I don't think they have to feel that uh, uh, they're going to get their kids out of, uh, out of the military. There's no draft. That's the difference. It's not really a maturity of the nation. I would have liked to have thought that, but I really believe that it has to do with there being no draft. Well, you answered it earlier. I was going to say, do you believe that this nation should have a draft, but you uh, have a broader sense that national service should be a prerequisite to citizenship? It's, uh, yes, it's, it's not necessarily a prerequisite, but it's, a, uh, it's one of the obligations of citizenship that I believe should take place. But obviously, I'm in a minority on that because if I was in a majority, we'd have it already. Harvey, I know you're so very dedicated to Jewish war veterans. The organization means a lot to you. Tell me more about it. What, is the, what do they do? Uh, they have influence, I think, uh, almost out of proportion of their numbers uh, in what they do. For example, uh, you saw the testimony in front of Congress. We also have a Capitol Hill Day in which we lobby for veterans' uh, benefits and stuff where each we meet congressmen and congresswomen from all of the different jurisdictions over a two-day period. We also do a lot of litigation our issues. We've litigated in the last five years uh, against war memorial crosses. We've litigated uh, in favor of transgenders in the military. We've litigated in favor of DACA, uh, veterans, and uh, uh, soldiers. We've also had good communication with executives, uh, except for the prior administration. Uh, we, uh, I'm on the trans. I've met with the transition team and the Bi of the Biden-Harrison defense transition team. We influence and give a Jewish voice uh, to all three branches of government. And this is a reason to support the Jewish war veterans. We also have a museum. It's the Museum of American Jewish Military American History. I think I got the in the wrong order. And it's a museum in which... Uh, the legacy of the Jewish military contribution to the United States is permanently enshrined. And it's a good museum as well. When you take your uh, school and when you take your friends and when you go down and visit the U.S. Holocaust Museum, make it your business to also visit this other museum because this museum shows American Jews as warriors, as heroes, whereas the Holocaust Museum shows Jews as victims or survivors. There should be a balance there. We should not be thought of internationally and even nationally as victims, as possible survivors. 
We were also individuals that put a lot into this country and have died for this country and that have done great things. We have 19 Jewish Americans who have won the Congressional Medal of Honor, probably five times that amount deserved it, but due to anti-Semitism, didn't get it. That's one of the things that Jewish war veterans as an organization does. It goes back and looks at the military record of different uh, Jewish uh, warriors and try to upgrade their uh, medals if necessary. Yeah, it's important to accentuate the dedication of Jews as people of strength, now now more than ever, for sure. Um, so as you've described it, Jewish war veterans, really, the organization plays a, a, an important role in making that all happen. Um, so Harvey, how are you feeling? Uh, I think my health is pretty good for somebody who's 80, who's 78 and a half. I don't want to overdo it. I'm not 80 yet. I still exercise uh, two hours a day. My uh, cancer from Asian Orange is in uh, remission. And uh, uh, mentally, I seem to be uh, uh, not, have not lost too many uh, miles per hour off my fastball. And um, I'm feeling good. I really miss traveling. I had 12 trips canceled when I was uh, a national commander, uh, to my dismay. And uh, like you and like almost everyone else in this nation, I'm, uh, I have cabin fever. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, are, you and Linda are uh, truly a world travelers. Uh, and you've been to, I know you've been to all 50 states. That's the rumor that I've heard. That is true. And not to mention uh, several other countries. Harvey, you are really one of the uh, great leaders of uh, Temple Beth Avodah. You have served both uh, formally as a president, member of the board, but also just your spirit and the way that you've participated in and supported the work and the heart of the community is the opposite of a Shanda. It's a Machaya. And uh, we are really thankful to you for taking the time to talk with us today. And we wish you uh, all the best, continued robust good health. And I can assure you as someone who's been at bat as you've pitched your fastball, uh, that it is definitely still there, hot across the plate. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. And I think these uh, podcasts are a fascinating way of getting to know uh, members of the congregation. I love them. I'm so glad. I'm glad now you're part of the collection. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.